Good morning. How are you? Second uh, Timothy chapter three. We've uh, spent some time on this passage over the past couple months. How about verse ten? Paul is speaking to Timothy. He says, "But you have carefully followed my doctrine or teaching." Uh, by the way, I'm reading from the New King James. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord had delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we uh, spent some time looking at verses 16 and 17, and what we saw is that Paul is making uh, two assertions about the Scripture. The first assertion is that all Scripture is inspired. And we talked about the meaning of inspiration, the fact that inspiration means that God, the word here, inspired, literally means God breathed. It means that God breathed into, or we use the word inspiration, okay, when we think of inspiration as the breath coming in, but it, it, it could be translated expiration. It's God breathing out. God's breathing out his word, of course, into the, the, the mind, the soul, the heart of the prophet, the apostle that gave us, whoever gave us the word, right? So God breathes out his word into the, the uh, inspired person, and then they record what God then gives them. As I pointed out previously, there's definitely a human element in inspiration. We, we read a book, uh, say we read John, and then we read Matthew, we see they use different language, they see things a little differently. So there's always a human element mixed in, yet the miracle of inspiration is that although the human element is mixed in with the divine the, the, the divine governs the human in such a way that the product is error-free. Yes. That's what makes the scripture unique, is that the, the, the end product is that we have the actual mind, thoughts, and even words of God himself. And so the, the quote, final product, if you will, of this process of inspiration is that we have a, a word from God, a sure word from God, a word from God which is accurate and inerrant. So there's no falsehood, there's no error, there's no deception, there's no mistakes in God's word. Amen? Amen. Um, some people will say they believe the Bible's inspired, but when you begin to ask questions, they don't really believe it's inerrant. That is, the, that is really the issue when it comes to inspiration. We also saw that all, when Paul says all scripture or every scripture, he meant every portion, every book, every word. Not just some of it, 
not just some's more inspired than other parts are inspired, it's all inspired. And I, I took a few minutes to comment on the fact that there's a kind of a, a movement today to, to highlight the words of Jesus uh, and to actually downplay. When, and, you know, you think, well, that's a good thing, right? Right? Jesus, is, yeah, Jesus, yeah, of course. The problem is you can't take the words of Jesus out of the context. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Jesus prophesies that he's going to give his spirit to the apostles so they can write the New Testament. I mean, you, you can't just yank the words of Jesus out and say this is more inspired than the rest of it. Whether you have a red-letter Bible, a blue-letter Bible, a green-letter Bible. I actually had one of those. Yeah, I should have kept it because they don't make them anymore. I had a green-letter Bible. Um, killed my eyes, I got rid of it. Anyway, um, so Jesus' words are, are not to be perceived in a way that somehow they're more inspired than the other words. All of Scripture, every Scripture is inspired by God. Amen? Amen. The second assertion Paul makes is because it's inspired, it is therefore profitable. Right? It is profitable. And he mentions four things that, that the Scripture is profitable for. One, he says, for doctrine or teaching. Next, he says, for reproof. Then he says, for correction. And then he says, for instruction or training in righteousness. And then the end product of this, he says, is that the man of God, the Christian, may be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the word of God teaches us, but then it also convicts us. It shows us. The word conviction here, as I pointed out, really means expose, okay, to expose something. So you, so you can see what you did not see before. The word correction means to show you the right path. As I pointed out, um, a, a good teacher doesn't just say, that's the wrong answer. I mean, can you imagine your math class and the teacher looks at your work and well, that's the wrong answer, and they walk away. They just tell you the, that's the wrong answer. Well, help me get to the right answer, okay? Correction is act, actually means not pointing out the error. That's reproof. Reproof is pointing out the mistake. Correction is showing us the right way, showing us the right answer. Okay, so when God corrects us, he says, he says no, not this way. That's reproof this way. Think this way. Live this way. And so he, he, he corrects us and he puts us on the right path. <clears throat> but then the, the word also trains us. This training process is, is a lifelong experience of learning to think, feel, and act according to the word of God. Think, feel, and act according to the word of God. Now, as I pointed out, it's possible to be um, uh, not whole in the sense of being unevenly developed. And when Paul says the goal here is that the, the man of God may be complete, the word complete there means fully developed. So some of us may be real cerebral. And so we're really developed intellectually, but then we're stunted emotionally. Some people are very emotional, and, and their Christianity is all about the emotion. 
but they're intellectually stunted. In other words, they don't know any doctrine. They, they, they don't have, have much knowledge. Some are all about feelings. Some are all about duty. That's the will. Do, 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 do. Should I say do, do in the pulpit? <clears throat> so do, but not think. Do or not feel. Well, that, each of these is a different way that we are not complete. We're not balanced. The goal is that we be mature intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. This means that the entire soul learns to be formed by the Word of God. And this is a lifelong process of submitting oneself entirely to the Scripture. Lifelong process. And so God shapes us, trains us, through his word, and of course, through his spirit. Because without the spirit, the, the, the word would not be doing its work in our soul. So Paul says the word is inspired. Secondly, he says it is profitable. But the third thing he says here is in verse 15 that I wanted to discuss this morning. And that is this. He says this in verse 15. He says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Make you wise to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. First of all, the scriptures make us wise. The scriptures make us wise. Look at Psalm 119. We're going to jump around a little bit this morning. Hope you can follow along. And Psalm 119, which is a hymn to the Word of God, a hymn about the Word of God, David says this in 119, verse 97. He says, Oh, how I love your law. Are you all there? If you're there, say yes. yes. 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients or the elders, because I keep your precepts. I restrain my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So David is, is declaring the, the, the wisdom that one gets from the word of God. And, and we, we believers... I think, often takes so much knowledge for granted. Even people in, the, in America, people in the Western culture, take so much for granted um, of knowledge that they have, really from the Scripture. Wisdom that we have from the Scripture, and we don't even realize that apart from the, the, the Word of God, we would not have this knowledge. I mean, think about the fact that the Scripture tells us about the creation of the world. 
And, and, and we have Genesis 1, we have Psalm 19, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. There are many other texts that talk about God creating the world. Well, do you know in, in, in many pagan cultures, they don't know who created the world. There's all different kinds of myths about the origin of the world. Uh, some of the ancient philosophers came to the conclusion that, that, that the universe or the world must be eternal. It always was. It never even was created. So apart from Revelation, we don't know. You know why no one can know? Because we weren't there. That's why every time I hear a new scientific theory about the origins, I just yawn. Were you there? Did you see this happen? Well, no, it's a theory. It's just another theory. Well, we are wiser than our teachers in this regard. Because we know the origin of the world, amen? We know the world was created, and we know by whom it was created, by the Lord God, Jehovah. The scripture talks about God's providence in Psalm 104. We're not going to read it for the sake of time, but read Psalm 104 sometime. And it talks about how God, how God governs the world, how he gives rain, how he gives the sun, how he feeds the animals, how he cares for man. And we just take for granted that God's there and God's looking out for us. But in, in, a, in a pagan world, in a world without the scripture, they have no sense of providence. And in, 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 the, in the pagan world, life is random. Purely random. And the best that the, 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 the Western uh, agnostic has been able to come up with is, is a natural selection and the survival of the fittest. A very grim view of the world, by the way. If that's your presupposition, then aggression is the highest virtue. Not love. Not love. You cannot account for morals. You cannot account for altruism. You cannot account for love in a world of Darwinism. But we know God created the world. We know God watches over the world and governs the world. Amen? One of the most amazing revelations in Scripture that gives us wisdom is the fact not only that God created the world, but that God created mankind, humankind, you, God created you in his image. Let's go to Psalm 8 for a moment. We have the account, the original account in Genesis, but look at Psalm 8. Here in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, or O Jehovah, our Adonai. How excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him, man, a little lower 
than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, uh, verse 13, for you, he's talking to God, for you have formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. One of the most astounding revelations in the Bible is the, is, is the divine creation of mankind in the divine image. And this is why in, it is it, the, the notion of human dignity and human rights grew out of the Western Christian culture. It did not grow out of pagan philosophy. It did not grow out of skeptical philosophy. It grew out of a Judeo-Christian consciousness that God created all men and women equal. They all stood equal before him in his sight. And because they bear his image, though fallen and sullied and ruined, if you will, spiritually, that that image made them equal in the eyes of the law. And that's an astounding revelation. And we take it for granted. We just assume everybody thinks this way. Everybody doesn't think this way. Even today, in many cultures, people do not think this way. And, 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 and part of the, a big part of the culture war we're enduring today is, is the attempt to find a meaning and value in the person apart from God. Upon what basis do we build a notion of human dignity and human rights if not created in the image of God? How does evolution produce human dignity? That is the question. And that question has not been answered by skeptical philosophers. It has not been answered. They, they have attempted to answer it, but it's not been answered. And so we take for granted uh, an inherent sense of value being made in God's image. But, but the fact is, we would not know this apart from Revelation. And it's a wonderful gift because of that gift. And by receiving the gift of that knowledge, it has is, it is produced um, so many positive effects in our, in our culture. The Bible also tells us about, not only about the beginning, it also tells us about the end. The Bible tells us about heaven and hell, that the human soul being created in the divine image will live forever, and it will live forever somewhere. And the Bible tells us that there are two destinies. One is heaven, one is hell, and it depends on one's relationship or relationship to or standing Jesus or standing before God. There's different ways of saying it. Um, and this gives our lives a sense of purpose. Do you remember, some of you may remember when Rick Warren's book came out, The Purpose Driven Life, is that what it was called? And then he wrote The Purpose Driven 
fill in the blank, there were a whole bunch after that. Um, I was struck with the popularity of the book. I'm not criticizing the book, but when I read the book, I was like, that's a good book. But it wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, the revelation of all ages. But what struck me is, how do we account for the popularity of the book? Yes, it was written well, et cetera, et cetera. But it was something more. It was striking a chord. It was striking a chord in the fact that so many people, even many people sitting in churches, have a sense of aimlessness. They have a sense that they're, they're, they don't know why they're here. They don't know really what they're doing. They don't know what their purpose is. Well, the Bible tells us that we have purpose. The Bible tells us that we have destiny. We know where we came from. We know we were created in the divine image. We know God's in his providence watching over us, the world. And we know that we have an eternal destiny that will live forever. We know this. And all of this knowledge we take for granted. Assuming it's just common to humanity in all ages, but it's not. And we can only imagine what it must, must have been like or even must be like now in some cultures to live in the darkness of not knowing your origin, not knowing your value, not knowing your destiny. How life must be dismal and gloomy. But we know more than the ancients, amen? Through God's word. But Paul goes on and says, the word makes us wise, but not only wise about all of these things, but wise unto salvation. Wise unto salvation. See, the Bible talks about, tells us not only about the creation of mankind, it tells us about what is called the fall of mankind. And this tells us that, that this thing called sin, this disturbance in our lives that causes disharmony and pain, and maybe you don't use the word sin, maybe you use the word hassle, or uh, other words I can't say in the pulpit, um, that uh, this stuff just happens. But we all know, we, 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 we encounter uh, disharmony. We, dis- we encounter really evil on a daily basis. But what Scripture tells us here is that this is not the natural state, meaning this is not God's ultimate design for the world. That sin is an interruption, if you will. Sin is a deformation, a deformation of his original creation. So this tells us that um, the root problem for mankind is fundamentally moral and spiritual. The, The fundamental problem we're encountering is not a lack of education, not a lack of resources. It is a, a, a lack of goodness what the Bible calls sin. This is the root problem. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one, none of us. We've all inherited the sinful nature. So the divine image has been deformed. So man now is, a, a, is like a glorious temple that lies in ruins. Made in the divine image, and yet that image is marred with sin as a result of the fall. 
But not only that, but it tells us that God's response to sin was one of judgment. This is called the curse. You can read about it in Genesis 3. Now, the reason I'm bringing up the curse, because what we need to understand from the curse is two things. One, God's displeasure at sin. But secondly, that what we call nature is not natural. Let me say it again. Nature is not natural. Now, if you read books on sociology and ethics and that sort of stuff, culture, what, what you see is the, a push for whatever is natural is moral. Whatever is natural is moral. If it's, if it's human, it's moral. In other words, whatever I desire is okay. Of course, there's always one caveat, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. I won't delve into what's wrong with that argument. But the point I'm making is that the notion that it's based on an assumption that nature is natural. But the Bible says nature is actually itself deformed. That nature is not natural. Because sin has invaded the world and infected not only the soul of mankind, but, but sin has infected the entire world, indeed the entire universe. And so when we look at, you know, David and the psalmist, when they look at the, the heavens and they see the glory of God, but can you imagine a, a universe that's not tainted by sin? And the scripture tells us there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It'll be recreated and, and sin will be purged from the world, indeed, from the entire universe. But the other thing scripture tells us about salvation is that um, when we look at the Old Testament, which was primarily what Paul was talking about, you think, well, how did the old, that Old Testament make us wise to salvation? Well, it, it, it tells us about the problem, sin, right? And then it, it tells us about the law. Now, <clears throat> the law in the Old Testament was not designed to teach Israel or any, anybody else how to be right with God. <clears throat> that was not the purpose of the law. In fact, the purpose of the law was to show us that we are not able by our own efforts to stand before God. The irony of all ironies was the fact that, that because of our confusion, we took the law and made the law a means of salvation when in fact the purpose of the law was to say, my law is such, my law is so perfect you can't keep it. This is not the way to salvation because you will break it. Look at uh, Galatians 4 for a moment. Paul addresses this very confusion in the early church. In Galatia, the problem was a synthesis of, of works and law, excuse me, works and faith, or, or grace and law, an attempt to synthesize, synthesize the two. And Paul is saying, no, you're not understanding the function of the law. Now, their motive was good. They wanted to honor the law. They wanted to honor Moses. They wanted to honor the Old Testament. That's all good. The problem was they were misunderstanding God's ultimate purpose in the giving of the law. He says this here. He says, um, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, um, And this I say, that the law, 
which was 430 years later, now later than what? Later than the promise given to Abraham, okay? So what Paul is recounting is the fact that God spoke to Abraham and said to him, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God. Notice here in verse six of chapter three, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him or accounted to him for righteousness or justification. His faith was. So the argument Paul's making and makes all throughout the New Testament is that the right standing with God is based upon faith, not upon the law. And, he, and the point he makes here is we know this because Abraham was justified 400 years before the law was even given. And he says in 17 that the law, which was 430 years later than this promise and this faith of Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So God makes a promise to Abraham about Messiah, his seed. Abraham believes God that faith is imputed to him for righteousness or right standing. That's the promise. That's the covenant. Okay? The law is given later. The law was not given to annul that promise. Well, then why was the law given? That's the question. I'm glad you asked that. Weren't you all thinking? <laughs> smart, smart crowd. He says this in 21. He says, is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which was afterward to be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And in Romans, Paul says it is by the law that we have the knowledge of sin. Now, anybody here got a heavy foot when they drive? You can confess in church, you know. We're all, we're, you'll, you'll, get, you'll be forgiven. Right. Ryan's got a heavy foot. The, the, uh, the, crime for, the crime of speeding is only applicable where there's a sign. If there's no sign, there's no violation. Now, common sense might tell you don't go 85 on a crowded road, Right? But if there's no sign, if there's no law forbidding it, then you're free to do it, right? So let's say you get a, you get a zealous prosecutor and he says, you know, all these people are getting killed on Broadway, so let's put up a sign and we're going to make it, we're gonna make it uh, instead of people going 80, they're going to have to go 20. So they put a sign up and, man, they're writing tickets left and right, they're making all kinds of money, Right? But people get in an uproar. So they, okay, we'll, we'll light it. We're, we're going to change it to 35. But if you're used to going 85, man, that's 50. That's, you're still getting tickets, right? Then there's more uproar, and then they change it to, to 50. 
It doesn't matter where they put that. Whether it's 20, 35, 50, 65, 70, 80, 90, 100. If you go over the limit, you've broken the law. Right? No limit, no violation. No law, no sin. That's Paul's point. The more law, the more sin. The lower the speed limit, the more violators. So God gives mankind a law that demonstrates what really should have been apparent to all, but wasn't. So the law is designed to show us our need for a Savior. That was the function of the law. Now, I'm not saying there weren't other benefits to the law, but this was its fundamental function. And so, Paul says the scripture makes us wise to salvation because it shows us our human dignity. It shows us then our fall into sin. It shows us then that our, uh, through the law our need for some kind of salvation that's beyond ourselves. But of course, that's not enough. Thirdly, the law has to show us that it is through faith in Christ alone, right? Through faith in Christ alone. So when we look into Scripture, what we find out is that all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. All of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. Luke 24, Jesus uh, said this regarding the Old, this is is amazing because he's talking about the Old Testament, not even the New. In Luke 24, He says this, he says, then he said to them, he's talking to the the 11, he says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms were a, basically a uh, code for all of scripture. In that, at that time, all of Scripture being the Old Testament. In other words, all of the Old Testament, the primary focus of the Old Testament, Jesus says, is me. And then it says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. They had a Bible study with Jesus. Now, this is one Bible study I would love to have been at, right? I mean, really, think about it. Jesus not only opens the Word, he opens their minds, understand the word. He gives them he gives them divine illumination. And so can you imagine them? They're reading the Old Testament and they're seeing things that they never realized pointed to Jesus, that talked about him. And here he is walking them through the Old Testament saying there I am. There I am. Hey, see me right here? Amazing Bible study. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this to his opponents, those who are criticizing him. John 5, in verse, uh, we'll start at verse 39. In John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures, or some translators uh, translate this as an imperative, search the scriptures, For in them you think that you have eternal life. And these, meaning the scriptures, these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, 
but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. Man, listen, anybody that tells you that Jesus was a nice guy, do you realize what he just said to these people? He says right to their face, I know, I, I know you don't love God. And these were the Pharisees who, of all people, were the, the God lovers. And here he just rebukes them right to their face. It's astounding. It's not nice. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. But how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God, or some versions from God only? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. They take so much pride in in Moses and so much pride in, in the law and keeping the law. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words? So Jesus is saying to them, go back and look at Moses and read Moses uh, properly. Read Moses with your eyes wide open and you will see that Moses is speaking about me. And we can give so many examples. Even in the very first book in Genesis, after, after the fall, we have the first promise of salvation where, where God says to the woman, he says, he says that your seed is going to bruise the head of the serpent. Although his heel, I mean, he'll crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. In other words, a, a, a man born through a woman would someday come and destroy the work of the devil. And in, in the process of doing that, he would be wounded, but not fatally. Of course, this speaks of the death, but then the resurrection of Jesus, right? We see this in, in the offering of, of, of Isaac by Abraham, where the father offers the son, right? But then God provides a substitute, the whole idea of substitutionary atonement. The entire sacrificial system. I mean, if you read Leviticus, which many people don't do. When's the last time you read Leviticus? Um, Because it's very tedious. It's like you take the animal and you cut it this way. You take the fat off and you put the fat over here and burn it. Then you take the ashes and put the ashes there. And then you bury this. And then you're just like, wow. (laughs) But what's the point? After all throughout this, all throughout Leviticus, what happens is God gives these tedious things and then he says, I am holy. Be holy. Tedious, tedious, tedious. I am holy. Be holy. And this is the pattern all throughout Leviticus. And I remember talking to this gal one time. She said, you know, I started reading Leviticus and I did it because like, you know, I'm doing one of those reading the Bible things. Didn't want to read it. Thought it was going to be boring. And she said, but when I got done, I had such an appreciation for God's holiness. And that was the point. That is the point. That we reverence God in his holiness. The system shows us God's purity, but it also shows us God's provision. The fact that, that an animal could take the place of a human and we learn the idea of substitutionary atonement of a someone, someone or something that would take the, take the sinner's place. 
Well, the animal, of course, as we learn later, the animal's blood couldn't ever really take care of sin. But it taught us to think in terms of substitution. It taught us to think in terms of, of redemption by blood. So God was teaching, instructing. And all of this pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, who, when he appears on the scene, John looks at him and points at him and he says, Behold, look, this is the Lamb of God. And when he said that, they knew Lamb meant the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, Jesus. We have prophecies about Jesus. I'm just going to read one. Our time's up. Just a minute. I just want to read a little bit of this. Go to Isaiah 53. This is one of the most outstanding things in the Bible. In Isaiah 53, this passage is so crazy that scholars, uh, 19th century critics, uh, tried to argue and tried to prove that, that, in fact, Isaiah was written by two different people. And the first 39 chapters was one Isaiah, and 40 to the end was a second Isaiah, called Deutero-Isaiah. Scholars like to use big words. Deutero. See, I'm smarter than you. I said Deutero. <laughs> Not second, just Deutero. Elaborate theories, volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes written on this. And, and because here was the problem. In Isaiah 40 to the end, especially this chapter right here, it was so accurate, it was such an accurate description of Jesus that they said there is no way this could have been written before Jesus. It had to have been written afterwards. Now, they're, they're operating on an anti-supernatural assumption, right? <clears throat> who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he will grow up before him as a tender plant. He is, his, is, is God's servant, which is, is mentioned in 52.13. Excuse me, 52.13. Behold my servant... Etc., etc., right? Okay. Uh, verse 2 For he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him, no human beauty, that is. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised that we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. This is, this is about a God's servant who would become that lamb. Who would become that atonement. So that we would, would be reconciled to God. That we would have peace and that we would be healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is, this is the idea of vicarious atonement, where, where God punishes the, the sins of the world on, on the Messiah. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Not his own, 
but the transgressions of, of God's people. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And, and that was fulfilled in the New Testament. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I mean, this is it, right? This is about the Messiah to come, the suffering servant who would become an atonement a substitution for the sins of the people. All of the animal sacrifices now were, were pointing to this person who would become a human, a person in the flesh who would then bear the sins of, of God's people. <clears throat> this so accurately describes Jesus that's, that, that anti-supernatural scholars were convinced it had to be written after Jesus. There's no way. And so they, they promulgated this theory in, in uh, came out of Germany first. It's always Germany. <laughs> Can any good thing come out of Germany? No, just kidding. No, I like Luther. I like Luther. He, he wrote some great stuff. Not everything, but anyway. Volumes and volumes and volumes. Proving, of course, Deuterot was written Later on. Well, guess what happened? In the 1950s, a little boy walked into a cave and discovered what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in those scrolls were portions of Scripture that were hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. And in those Scripture was a copy of the book of Isaiah. Written hundreds of years before Jesus. And guess what? It said what Isaiah 53 said and says. Boom. All the learning, all the scholarship, all the theories down the drain. Wise unto salvation. Wise unto salvation. The scriptures point us away from ourselves because the truth is we're part of the problem. Because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. So we need a substitution. We need an atonement. We need a way to be right with God that isn't based on our performance and our works. That's why Paul says here that, that the scriptures make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, the, I'm going to wrap it up. The, there's a confusion about this too. Some people think that in the Old Testament, the way to salvation was works, but in the New Testament, it's by faith. That's not true. It has always been by faith. Genesis 15, way back, God's, God, it says that Abraham believed God and it was 
accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. He was right before God because of his faith. And that account in Genesis is quoted in the New Testament by Paul. And the entire doctrine of justification or salvation by faith is based upon Abraham's profession of faith, which preceded the law. To believe is to enter into that covenant. It is the covenant of promise. The covenant of promise. The same covenant that Abraham had. For by grace you are saved through faith, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's what scripture tells us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, just, just imagine you're, you're, you're out and... Has anybody seen that new shark movie? I know you're embarrassed to admit it. Nobody's seen that movie? Holy shark week. Really? All right, you got to see it. Okay, you got to see it. You're thinking, man, that's, it looks corny. Well, you know, it kind of was corny, but it's fun. My wife literally jumped out of her seat one time. That was worth the price of the ticket seeing that. It was, it, was, it was fun. It was fun. Anyway, okay, why am I talking about this? Okay. Uh, I was going to use an illustration. I thought about the ocean. And I thought about the sharks. Okay, sorry. Uh, so um, when, when I became a Christian, uh, uh, I wasn't a, a kid. I was a young adult. And my, my old pastor liked to use a couple illustrations. And he used this one. I probably used it before. I want to use it again. It, it's kind of like this. So imagine that, that uh, you're out swimming and or, or you're, out in, you're out in a raft and someone's out there and, and there's someone and, and they're clearly starting to drown and they start screaming for help. Screaming for help. So you, you row over there or maybe even have a motorboat. You, you zoom over there and you look at them and they say, help me, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And you say, well, I'll tell you, what, you're, uh, this is your lucky day because I have a little manual on how to swim in the ocean. Here it is. See you later. Did, did, did the person in the boat save the drowning man? He instructed him, right? He didn't save him. Well, let's say a guy's drowning and then the guy zips over in his boat. And he actually grabs him and he puts him in the boat. He says, I am, you almost drowned. He's like, yeah. He starts to take him to the shore, right? And, you know, the guy was drowning, so he's got, he got all this water. So the guy burps really loud. He says, how dare you burp on my boat? And he kicks him back in the ocean. <laughs> and the guy drives off. Did he save him? No. The man's drowning, and, and the guy pulls up on the boat. He grabs him. He throws him into the boat. He zips him, takes him, and gets him to shore. He takes him out of the boat. He puts him on He carries him all the way to the ground, puts him down, resuscitates him. He saves him. That's what Jesus did for us. He saves us. He doesn't give us a manual how to save ourselves. He doesn't say, okay, I'll save you. I'll keep you in the boat until you burp. <laughs> until you do something I don't like, then you kick you out of the boat. That's not a savior. A savior saves you. And that makes us the savee. Okay? Too many people are drowning, but they insist on trying to swim to shore, and they're not going to make it. They're trying to save themselves. 
Faith means you come to the place where you stop trying to save yourself and you say, I need a savior. I need someone outside of me. I need an other, okay, to rescue me in my condition. It's a humbling thing. And this is the problem. This is why we resist. I resisted for a long time coming to Christ. I was saying, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I do some things that are wrong. Yeah, yeah, you want to call it sin, fine. And, uh, but I didn't want to admit that at the, the, the end of the day, I was really helpless. And I think, well, I'm not helpless. I'm an accomplished person. I'm successful. I don't mean that kind of helpless. I mean helpless in terms of your eternal destiny. I mean helpless in dealing with the, uh, what do you do about the sin problem. And the scripture tells us that God provided a lamb. He put all of our sins on that lamb. The lamb would die in our place as a substitute. And then when you look to the lamb and you believe in the lamb, that that faith is imputed to you for righteousness. Amen? Amen. Righteousness would be you now stand before God as acquitted. Because whatever punishment your sins deserved, that punishment was laid on him and the account has been settled. All the way to the shore. And God gives not only forgiveness, he gives eternal life, he gives you his spirit. I mean, I can't even begin to talk about all the blessings you receive when you, when you look to Christ for salvation. But it's by simple childlike faith. It's not complicated. Don't make it complicated. It's simple. Look to him. Yes, God, I've sinned. I look to your son, Jesus. I look to what he did for me on the cross. I put my faith in him. And that simple childlike faith is then imputed to you as right standing with God. You will be born again. And your life will radically change for the better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of your great love, you... uh, gave us your word. What do we think about over the centuries, millennia of giving us the scripture, preserving it? It's an astounding gift. We thank you for the wisdom of so many things that we receive from your word, that we have dignity, that we have value, that we have purpose. We have a destiny. We thank you most of all for the wisdom we have regarding your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for the Christians here, Lord, that they would have a renewed hunger for your word and they would search your word because they're searching for Jesus. They would look for Jesus, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price. And we know, Lord, your promises us that when we seek you with our whole heart, we will find you. I pray for any here, Lord, that came in not sure of their their destiny, not sure of their standing. I pray that, Lord, that you grant them understanding to know that your son Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he has risen from the dead. He's conquered sin. And if they will look to him in faith, They will be saved. We pray, Lord, that they'll not be like those who opposed your son, 
when Jesus said to them, but you are not willing to come to me. God, make them willing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.